Listen, Derek kicked us back off in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. And uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Derek was phenomenal per usual like he is. But he had three points that I want to kind of uh, recap that were very challenging to me. Like he talked about, and he did, it sounds simple, but it was very deep. Lament it, repent it, and sent it. And I've been thinking, I thought about that the whole day, and I've been thinking about it all week. And it made me feel a certain type of way. It made me really think about uh, my life. And in re- honestly, I'm going to put it forth to you. It made me wonder, when was the last time that I lamented anything? Like I've mourned before, recently. Like I could tell you about mourning. I mourned. Uh, last year when Sarah's mom passed, I mourned when one of my children got severely injured when she was 10. I mourned when I found out that one of my, my adopted children had suffered childhood trauma. I mourned those things, I, and I felt that, but I was like, when was the last time me, Pastor Dave, Preacher Dave, Christian Dave, lamented for those around me, in and around, let's just say Jacksonville Beach, all these people, I mean, we live in many paradise, right? We live at the beach, and all these people come down here for the sand and the, the surf and the sun and all the restaurants and everything, but how many times have I really looked around and thought about how many people come down to this little paradise that we live in, and they're lost? And they may look like they got it all together on the outside, but they're lost. They don't know Jesus, they don't know what he offers. They don't know that he offers peace. He does, they don't know that he offers freedom. And there's no one telling them. And there's no one lamenting over it. When was the last time you felt that way? Have you ever? That's the way it made me feel. And I want to use that as we move into what happens after Nehemiah uh, laments, repents, and prays. Kind of what, what God does after he does that. So really quickly, I'm going to recap where we are. So we're getting ready to start chapter 2. In chapter 1, this guy Nehemiah comes on the scene. A hundred years after the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, destroyed the place, burnt down the walls, scattered many of the people, and took some of them into exile. So then 70 years later, God raises up these people, Zerubbabel. Ezra and a prophet named Haggai and a remnant of of Israelites go back and they rebuild their temple and they start to rebuild their lives. But they get opposition. They don't finish this wall that Derek was teaching about last week that just still lays in ruin and they get busy and they get complacent and they go back to just playing the church game, right, and showing up when you need to and they just live in the midst of the ruin and they just live. So then here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jew that has never seen his homeland. He is born in Persia, ancient Iran. He's never seen this place. He's got this really important job. He works for the king of, of Persia. And he get these people come through. This is what Derek was teaching last week. And they, they're Jews. And he's like, hey, guys, how's the homeland coming? They had just traveled 800 miles from Susa, which is how far away uh, um, Jerusalem was from this, this city that, that Nehemiah is in. And he said, this is what they say. It's not good. Things are not going well. The places, the walls are burnt down. The gates are smashed. The people are in great distress. It's not good. And in in, if you look in different translations, it talks about the people are in shame. The people are in ang- anxious. There's no protection anymore. They're living their lives. They're doing their thing. But all this opposition around them, there's nothing protecting us. And it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. 
And when Nehemiah there was teaching, when Nehemiah hears this, it says that he broke down and he lamented and he mourned and he prayed and he fasted. He fasted over this place. Why? This is what I was thinking when he was teaching this last night. Why was he so moved? He'd never seen it. He'd never been there. And this is why I think he was so moved. I'll just tell you. I think the dream was crushed. I think he, he, he knew the history, right? He knew that, that they had went back and their homeland, the land of their fathers was going to be restored and their identity was going to be re, uh, given back to them. He, that's what he thought was happening. And he dreamed and longed of, to see it like that as a, as a Jew, as a Jewish person. And when he heard it, when he heard that it wasn't good and the people had become complacent and apathetic and gave up the thing that God sent them to do in the beginning, restore the ruin. It broke his heart. It crushed him. He knew. Why did, he, why did they stop? You see, Nehemiah, if you look in Scripture, he wasn't the only one that weeped over this city, Jerusalem. We have Jer- Jeremiah. He becomes known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 8, chapter, uh, Jeremiah 8 verses 18 and 19, listen to this. He says, my grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem, the people ask? Is her king no longer here? Can you hear the the sadness in his words? Jeremiah wept over the sins and the people and how they are now far from God as, as, as if he left the city. He was not with them. And Nehemiah mourned and lamented and cried over the complacency and the apathy of the people to give up when opposition came and not finish the work that God had called them to. And lastly... Jesus, our Jesus, he wept over this very same city. Luke 19, verse 41, it says this. And when they drew near and saw the city, he, Jesus, wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? God, just with, with lamenting in his heart as he looks out at these people that are lost and don't know the things that make for peace, him, that he came to, to give us peace. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus again, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often do you hear the compassion in Jesus' voice? How often... I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Jesus, they wept and lamented over this city. Peace has been taken. The people have been scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Things are not going well. There's much shame, and nobody cares. The people that live in there just really don't care. I mean, they're dealing with the anxiousness and worried about, the, you know, opposition from the, the, the tribes that live in and around there, but they don't really care. They're just busy. If you go back and come and listen, if you've been with us any time, Ezra, they were busy just building their paneled houses, it says in Scripture. They got busy, and I'm wondering if we're doing the same thing. Maybe I'm just so busy with my life and, and my house and my kids and my thing that I can't see the hurt hurting people around me, the lost that don't know Jesus. 
because I'm busy with my paneled house and I don't really care. My spiritual father, his name's Daniel Williams. He started a church down in Ponte Vedra. It was called Christ Chapel. Later, he renamed it to Christ's Redeemer, and now it's known as Redeemer Church, same place off of Roscoe Boulevard where I grew up, and uh, he was very influential to my life. I was about 15 when I first started hearing preaching. I can still remember as a 16-year-old him standing on a stage very much like this uh, with tears in his own eyes talking about the 24 elders casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus as they laid before him in Revelation. Still, get, it makes me feel a certain way just thinking about it, but I remember he told me one time, he said, yeah, me and his wife, Sharon, were in a restaurant in Ponte Vedra, and they lived a very wealthy place. And we were in this restaurant. It was very full, and everybody was doing their thing. And he said, I was just sitting in there looking at all these people, right? And they got all the money. They can, they can cover up the shame. They can cover up the anxiety. They can cover up the distress. They can cover up the disgrace because they got more than all of us, right? But they're in here just living, living life. And he's thought, you know, I'm just looking at all these people, and I realized probably, like, the majority of the people in this room, they, they're lost. And probably maybe a few in there know Jesus, but most of these people in this room are lost, and if they were to die, they would spend eternity without God. Let that one land on you for a second. Eternity without God. And then he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, and after I looked around, I realized I didn't really care. I didn't care that much. I wasn't moved. I knew it. I was looking at it, but I wasn't moved. I wasn't burdened. You know, I was, I was a pastor. I'm doing my pastor thing, but I was busy with my work, and I don't really care that much. I'm complacent. I'm apathetic. And that's what you're seeing in Nehemiah here, a complacency and an apathetic view of the lost. But Jesus weeped over the lost, did he not? When are we going to start to contemplate the lost? here in Jacksonville Beach, where God has planted us. Have you ever thought this way? We're supposed to be Christians. When are we going to open our eyes and look and see what Jesus would see if he rode into our city? We're supposed to imitate Jesus. 1 John 2, 6 says this, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. I'm supposed to be like Jesus. I'm supposed to weep like Jesus. I'm supposed to care about the lost in and around my life. And so are you. When are we going to maybe even consider what lament means for our lost city? In our lost world, Derek talked about the golf tournament. Derek, uh, Tyler got up at the end. You know, we played this whole round of golf and he spoke about his ministry, the specific thing we were trying to raise money for, Right? And he told this story about this 13-year-old girl that her, in Uganda now. Who they sold, the, her parents sold her to a witch doctor. The witch doctor had his son impregnate her with the intention as soon as she had the baby, they would sacrifice the baby in, in an evil, wicked ritual. And they saved her, Right? But at the tournament, and you're going to see some Sumerians in this text in a little bit, but we talked about how most of you are Christians. You heard the Good Samaritan story, right? The, bl- the bloody, the beaten, the, the traumatized person is laying on the ground, dying, needing help, needing someone to intervene. And what do all the church people do? What do all the religious people do? They purposely go on the other side of the road because they got to go to work. They got to go to soccer. They got to get their kid to lacrosse. They got to get to dance. They got stuff to do, and they don't want to see the injustice laying on the road, because why? 
If we all instinctively know Christians in the room, that if we view the injustice, if we see the hurting and the lost, something has to be done. We should act. But if we don't see it and we don't hear it, we can just stay complacent, can't we? We can just keep on going, going to work, going to dance, and going to the things that make us happy. The Good Samaritan. When, you know, Derek said this last week, God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. You know, we say that. Many a great preacher like Derek has said that phrase. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. But what I'm saying today and how I felt, if we're going to say that up here, what does that look like for us? What does it look like for me to be a Christian to have a broken heart like Jesus for the people that he came and died for, that he seeks, like Derek just said, he's the hound of heaven, compassionately caring and chasing after lost souls and those that need peace that only he can give. You know, this isn't just a story about a man that weeps. This is about a story about a people that got complacent and apathetic and walk on the other side of the road. And I'm just asking, are we doing that? I'm just saying, am I doing that? Am I complacent? Are you complacent? Is it easier for me to just make sure I stay in my lane so I don't have to deal with the injustice? I don't have to deal with the hurting and the lost because I don't have time for it. You see, the complacency that I'm talking about is not just about these burned down gates. This kind of complacency and apathy in the Christian church can lead to broken marriages, destruction of the family unit of families, damaged relationships, crumbling churches, and cities full of lost people that don't know that Jesus longs to save them and give them the grace that they need to make it through this life. You know, a few weeks, it's opening of the, beach, opening of the beaches. There's going to be a parade that comes right down this first street. A lot of the roads are going to be blocked off. And I would say, including myself, most of us in this room are just going to be irritated that it's even harder to park now. <laughs> right? But man, what, on that day, I mean, you laugh, but think about it. We are. We're going to be like, oh, we were, you know, ride your bike. But we're going to be irritated that we can't park. But right past the front doors of this church... So many people are going to walk down there. And what would Jesus see if he were to watch that view from our space? Would he not weep over those that don't know him, that are far from him? But we're going to be irritated with parking. He loves them. Think about it. He loves them and they don't know him. And we do. And he's given us a ministry, a gospel to share. Where is our concern for others? Is it possible that we are just like these people in Nehemiah that we're about to read that have just, this has just become our normal? We just got used to living in the rubble. Yeah, we're, we're busy and the rubble's all around us and this doesn't look that bad to us anymore. Right? It just doesn't look that bad to us anymore. One quick last story. Uganda again. We were adopting Kennedy and... We, we go to the Tyler's Orphanage, the Oko Refuge, and it was smaller then, but I, I, they'll tell you the same thing. Caitlin, when you're in this place with these, 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 these orphans that are cared for, 
There's this tangible, just love of God present. I, these kids are so well loved and so, they're, they're so well taken care of. And you can just tell, it's just this amazing feeling, right? We take Kennedy, we got to go to the big city where the U.S. Embassy is to finish the adoption process. Can't stay there, uh, can't be over here, got to be there. It's going to take a few weeks, long process. So we were looking for some things to do. So Sarah did some research and there was a state fund uh, orphanage not far where we could walk from our hotel. So we just had that experience, right? We go over to the state-run ones. Most of these kids were street kids, just kind of got scooped up. Same place. You know, they're, not, they're being taken care of. They're being fed. This is one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my entire life. These kids were so starved for love, so starved for just compassion and peace, just, just for physical human contact. They started crawling all over me and Sarah, like, and it wasn't good. It wasn't, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were so lost and, and needing to be touched and loved, right? Like we were you're fighting them off to the point where they would start to physically fight each other over who could hold our hands. This is why Jesus weeps. Yeah, we look like we got it all together. They look like they're living and doing their thing. But man, maybe that's why we see so much fighting in the world. We're fighting because we don't have Jesus. And we're fighting for, for connection, for love, for, for him, for peace. And we just don't know how to find it because nobody's telling them. And maybe no one's praying like Nehemiah. How quickly do we stay within these ruined walls? But Jesus, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, right? As yourself. The protection from evil has been damaged. The people are full of anxiousness and despair. Shame, distress, rule, and something has to be done. This is the heart of Jesus. Something has to be done. This is the heart of Nehemiah. This is the heart of Jeremiah. So with all that emotion I just threw at you, making you feel a certain type of way, let's jump into Nehemiah 2, and with that in view, now you can see Nehemiah as like a dim picture of Jesus right? He laments and he, and he mourns, but then he does something. Jesus did the same thing. He weeped over us and our brokenness, but something happened to be done, and that thing was the cross of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah chapter 2. So you heard all that. Let's, let's see what goes on. What does he do with all that lamenting and that repenting and sending, the praying? Verse 1, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took the cup and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Real quick, I don't want to miss this. Month of Nissan, uh, it's not a car. There is, the Hebrews have two, thank you very much. The Nissans have two, uh, they have two calendars. The reason that's important is that this, this marks four months since Nehemiah got that report. Four months since he began his lament, began his mourning, began his praying and asking God to be burdened. Four months he carried that on the inside and kept it from, the king never saw it. Who is Artaxerxes? Uh, he has got a, he's an interesting guy. Uh, his nickname was Long-Handed One. I don't, I just thought that was funny. Like, how, that guy's got a long hand. Uh, really no spiritual importance. It's just like long hand, you know. Uh, his father was Xerxes. Xerxes was killed by a betrayer named Artaban. They liked the name Art back then. Art, I don't get it. But Artaban uh, kills the king, and blames it on Artaxerxes' older brother. So everybody kills Artaxerxes' older brother. When Artaxerxes figures this out, him and this guy Artaban, just gladiator style, one-on-one -on -one fight to the death. 
Artaxerxes won, now he's the new king. So in ancient times, there was always coups, there was always assassinations. In comes the cupbearer, Nehemiah's job. This is a very important job. He is the cupbearer. He literally means he, at night, he takes, or during dinner time, he goes into the closest you can get to the king, washes the cup, fills it with wine, and he has to drink some of it first to make sure it's not poisoned. Then he gives it to the king. And so this is a big job. And usually the cupbearer became one of the king's closest, most trusted advisors, right? They're in there at night drinking the wine. You know how that goes. And he's just spilling the beans. He loves this guy, you know. Um, they're pals, you know. But he says, now I had not been sad in his presence. All right, so you know the players now. Uh, you know what a cupbearer does. And if he was easily influenced by money or politics, he would be easy to assassinate the king. So they, there was a vetting process. You couldn't be sad in front of him. You're supposed to make this guy happy. He needs, he vents to you, you don't get to vent to him. That's the job, right? He dumps on you, you give him the wine, and you, you, that's your role. You don't get to dump on the king, you know? So verse two, and the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Uh, he had never been sad before. This is a breach of protocol. I just told you this could end badly. I mean, he could be killed for, for, for doing this, for even cracking and showing it. Verse three, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? So the burden had finally bore four months of praying and he could not contain it any longer. And he finally tells the truth. He had spent four months asking God and praying to God, and God began to burden Nehemiah. I heard David Wilkerson say something like, something to the effect is, when you go near to God and you pray to God, God will begin to share his heart for you, and it will always lead to the lost, those he's trying to seek and save. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you see how much Nehemiah prays? He didn't leave. I mean, he internally... Psh, Help God, here it is, four months, and now I, I, I've, 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 the burden is bust. I've got to do something. He prays, verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your eyes and sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. He, time. he was ready. He was ready for this moment. Verse 7, I said to the king, if he pleases the king, let the letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let, let me pass through it until I come to Judah, and a letter to the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to, to make beams for the gates of the fort, fortress of the temple, for the walls, and for the house that I'm going to be in. This guy's a genius. And then the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. All right, let's look at this. I mean, this is amazing. Four months of being burdened. Four, and here's the opportunity to tell the truth. He risks his life. This is very daring. Here's the part you may not know. 15 years earlier, this very same king, Artaxerxes, is the one that sent a commission to stop the rebuilding of the walls. There was political pressure. These, these governors that we're fixing to meet here in a second, they didn't like it because they were taking advantage of the Jews. They were taking advantage of, of Judah. And, and, and they liked the fact that they had control over it and there was no walls of protection. But man, in that moment, God just comes through after all of these prayers and gives them everything. I mean, he had to be a great politician or just very good looking like me because he got everything. 
I mean, he, he got him to pay for it. The, he, not only does he get to go, the Persians are paying for all of it, including the house that he gets to live in. I mean, this is unbelievable to me. What happens with all of his lament when the opportunity comes? Even in fear, he leveraged his influence, his position. He made his request, and God provides the resources, right? But see, here's the bigger thing. You can look at history. I read, obviously, about history here where I found longhand. And uh, they say maybe Artaxerxes was making like a political move, you know? Like he's, you know, doing his thing. He's like, well, it's been 15 years. I need to kind of, because they're always doing that thing. But here, ironically to me, is how God works, And a greater truth is seen right here, and I don't want you to miss this. When all hope is gone and complacency sets into the people and there's no voice anymore for the lost, there's no one speaking up for those laying on the the ground of life, beaten, traumatized, full of depression, anxiety, and no one cares anymore. When the voice is gone for them, when the church, us, when we begin to pray, and we begin to seek God and ask him to break our hearts, God will begin to rise up Nehemiah's in our day. And Esther's, who's, Esther, the one that said, for such a time as this I've been born, who's not very that much far, uh, removed from this story, honestly. She married a, a, a relative of Artaxerxes. But God would begin to rise up Nehemiah's and Esther's to become the voice for a lost and dying world once again. And maybe some of us in this room, God is going to burden you. He's going to burden your hearts to pray and to seek and lament, to become Nehemiah's, to become Esther's, to pray on the behalf of those in our city, not just Jerusalem, but the city of Jacksonville Beach that don't know him. This should be us. I contend. I'm not doing it. We should pray this way. This should be a part of our, our, our Christianity as we pray for our city and pray for our community. We should do this. You should do this. This is what Jesus did. I should do this. Verse 9, then the king came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. He says this like he took his last sip of wine and then he was down. No, this is about a three-month journey with an army and a bunch of stuff. Three months he gets to these governors, verse 10, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, definitely pronounced all that right, uh, uh, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Every prayer gets answered possible for him. He gets everything he wants, and as soon as he gets to where these governors are, immediate opposition. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. So you see why this Jesus telling the Good Samaritan story? The Jews and the Samaritans, they've been butting heads for a long time. It would have meant something. It would have stung a little for them to say that the Samaritan is the one that stopped and did something. But immediate opposition. I mean, think about it. This will happen to us. Just because God answers our prayers does not mean we're not going to have adversity. Does not mean that things are still, there's still going to be roadblocks and things that are, are difficult. The evil, there is an evil force in this world, let me tell you. Go read Ephesians 6. There is, we are in a spiritual fight. There are evil forces, evil forces against you and I, against us, against our people, against our city, against Jacksonville. And if we, the church, would begin to rise up and pray and show up like an army to fight against the gates of hell, they will resist. There will be opposition to this. It's important to know this. It's to remember this. There's going to be opposition even in the midst of clearly answered prayers. 
So verse 11, I, so I went up to Jerusalem. So he leaves those guys. They're going to be mad about this. And he gets, to, he gets to Judah. Listen to what happens. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Incredible. Then I rose in the night, and I and a few men went with me, and I told no one what the God, that my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Crazy. Seven months Seven months has passed since he mourned and he fasted and he prayed and he finally gets there. You think he'd be, I think he would be chomping at the bit to just go to work. We got the gear. We got the resources. Let's start building. But he waits. He waits for three days. It's amazing to me. Why? The the better question is why did he wait? What is he waiting for? I think he had learned through his life of prayer, the importance on always waiting on God. I believe that's why he did this. Waiting reveals our impatience. We hate waiting, especially today. We, we hate waiting, right? We hate being in traffic. We, we just, we, it, it reveals our impatience, but waiting teaches us patience. Patience is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that God wants to develop in his followers. Why does he want to do that? So that we rely on him first and not on our own strength, not just get, oh, we're here to, we, we know what to do. No, he wants to strengthen us first. He wants us to wait on him in prayer before we act and we move. And I think that's exactly what's happened here. Um, three days of waiting is a long time. I suspect that he, he did a lot of praying in those moments. In verses 13 through 16, they do their, their night They go at night and they inspect everything. I'm not going to read it all, but they go to each gate, each wall, inspect everything. They make their plan, and then they call everybody together. Look what happens in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see, all the the, the Jews Jews are there that that have been living there. All the people that need to hear it, all the opposition is standing in this place. Here comes Nehemiah. He must have been a a pretty charismatic guy, and he said said this to them. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins and and the gates are burned. Come, let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision or mockery or ridicule. And I told them of the hand of God, of my God that had been upon me for good. And also for the words that the king had spoken to me. After all that waiting, look what happens. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. God began began the strengthening, right? The strengthening comes. He tells them of the burden. He waits and prays on God. He preaches his message. God rises up and and the work is going to happen. And here's my three points today for you note takers. Write these down. But my prayer is that some of you in this room, that God would begin to write this on your heart. Number one thing is a recap of last week. Let's actually pray and ask God to give us a heart like his. A broken heart for the lost. A broken heart for Jacksonville Beach. When we see and hear these things, let's not look away. Let's not be like the religious people. Let's be like the Samaritan. Prayer and worship night is this Thursday, right? Can you imagine if some of you in this room, like, I've made you feel a certain type of way, and the Spirit of God is beginning to burden you. And can you imagine if if we showed up that night, many of us, and there were so many here that we couldn't fit everyone in Suite 7, and we were praying for Jacksonville Beach. We are praying for the people that walk past here. We are praying for the hundreds of people that surf at the pier every day. The people that come in and around this place and they don't know Jesus. Can you imagine if God would stir us that way and we would actually show up to pray for the lost? Point number two, and as we pray, 
I just said this, wait on God to move. Wait on God to move. Resist the urge to let empathy drive your actions. There's no strength in it. There's no strength in pity. Like it, you, if you're human pity, uh, you, try, you let that be the, your first course instead of praying and waiting, the little bit of resistance, a little bit of wind, it'll be blown away. But compassion is rooted in the spirit of God. It's rooted in the Holy Spirit and he will begin to grow that in the hearts of those that pray and he will strengthen the hands of us. He will strengthen the church. He will strengthen Ocean City if we pray, pray and wait on him to move. Number three, after we've done those things, when our opportunity comes, let's leverage our influence, our time, and our resources to do the work that he's calling us to. And the opportunity finally came, even though Nehemiah was scared, he was ready. God strengthened the hands of the people to do the good work, the good gospel. And, you know, in my heart, I mean, I know, I, I, like I said before, I, I, I burn hot, I'm passionate, but I... I I really been thinking about this all week, and I really believe in my heart that God does want to raise up some Nehemiahs and some Esthers in Jacksonville Peach that are moved by the lost here. I really believe that's something that God is, is wanting to see happen. He wants us to, to come to him in prayer and ask for a heart like Jesus. He wants us to be burdened for the injustice in the world, and he wants to rise up men and women that can be voices again for those that don't have a voice. This is what Jesus is like. This is what he wants from you and I. And maybe it's some of you in this room. Like I've stirred you up and you feel a certain type of way and you're like, yeah, I, 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 I don't feel that way. I've been a Christian a long time and I don't have a burden for the lost. If that's you, when we, when we have an opportunity to, to respond, some of you need to come up to this altar and confess that, you long-term Christians. God, I, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I don't have your heart and I don't have your, your burden for those that don't know you. I just, I've been busy just trying to be happy, God. But I want you to break my heart. I want to have a heart like Jesus. If that's you, don't miss an opportunity to come up here and go near the king. Go near the throne. Or maybe you're in your room and you're like, I'm, this is this is not, I don't know how to do any of this. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but this is too much for me because I'm already dealing with my own anxiety and my own shame. And I'm in distress. I don't, things are not going well for me. Yes, I, I want to care about Jacksonville Beach and those that don't know Jesus here, but I'm personally struggling. I'm still waiting on God to answer prayers for me. I'm still waiting for him to, 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 fix those things that I'm dealing with. I don't know if this is, is something that I can do. Oh God, you got to go back to, to the story. What does Nehemiah do? He goes to the king, and even though he was afraid, he still makes his requests. And Artaxerxes is not your king. He's not my king. Joe Biden's not our king. No president, no, no president of the United States is our king. We don't look to the government for peace. We don't look to, to the government for, for, for love. We look to the king of kings who sits on the throne of grace, who calls to you and I with eyes full of tears, calling for us to come boldly to his throne. Right? Call, calling me to come, even with my, my suffering, even with my own fear, he says, come to me. Why are you sad? 
Jesus knows why you're sad, but he wants you to come to him and tell him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him, God, I don't, uh, things are not right. Make your request to God. We have a good king. Let, let's be people of prayer that really do. We don't just say it, but we show up and we pray. Prayer becomes a part of our life. And whether things are going well or whether things are going bad in my life, I'm consistently going to that throne and making my request to Jesus over and over and over. I'm consistently doing that in, in city group and small groups and fight clubs and on Thursday nights. And I'm telling you, I believe that the more that we come, even no matter what position, we leave that throne room, that place of prayer, we leave wanting to speak his name. We want to speak Jesus over our own circumstances. We want to speak Jesus over our children. We want to speak Jesus over our families. We want to speak Jesus over the lost in and around Jacksonville Beach. God will begin to strengthen us and give us a voice to speak his gospel when we pray in this way and ask him to break our hearts. Let's build the walls around our city, the spiritual walls through prayer, around our hearts, around our children, around our loved ones, around our community in prayer and fight against the gates of hell that oppose and mock and ridicule just like these governors did in our story. Will you stand with me?